walk the grounds of Wimbledon and the U.S. Open and Roland Garros with Chrissy Everett. And I've seen over the years how fans have responded to Chrissy with great affection and admiration, even awesome times. And why not? Her tennis achievements are towering. The resume is well known. 18 major titles, a long stint at number one, a career of remarkable consistency and longevity. We also had the pleasure, of course, of sharing the broadcast booth at ESPN with Chrissy for many years. We've called some of the best moments in recent tennis history. We've also sat there and described some of the worst Grand Slam finals imaginable, some serious clunkers, and that will make you closer as a broadcast team. So Chrissy will talk about her career here, of course, and we'll get some behind-the-scenes stuff on our ESPN tennis team. But also, Chrissy will talk about how her adversaries became her friends, Martina Navratilova and John McEnroe. And of course, we'll discuss Chrissy's fight with cancer in recent years, how cancer changed her, what it taught her, and most importantly, her message for the rest of us, how to look out for our health and be our own advocate. So today I've got tennis icon, trusted broadcast partner, and dear friend, Chrissy Everett. Well, Chrissy, thanks for taking time. We have so much to talk about. It's great to see your face. And very soon we will be at Wimbledon, back in that bunker office with a great view of the world's most famous tennis court. And I've had really the privilege and the fun of sharing that space with you. Some of the biggest matches in the tennis world in recent years. And I, I love how, as these two women are making their way to center court for a moment in their lives, and, and you've been the young player who's the underdog, you've been the more experienced player who's the favorite, you've been the winner on that court, the runner-up on that court, you've experienced everything. And I love how it makes you feel in those moments before a big final. Yeah, that's a really, really special center court. You know, I'm I'm American, and people always ask me, what's your favorite major? and you know, I want to say, I want to say the U.S. Open because I'm American and the crowd is really behind Americans. But I grew up watching Wimbledon on TV and it had such a royalty about it. And as the late Dick Emberg said, it's it's like the cathedral of tennis. You know, the, I, he he couldn't have said any better. Um, I always say when you when you are are a player and you walk out on the court, there's electricity and then there's like a hush. And then it's almost like you feel the history. You feel the, the ghosts or the spirits that have been there before you, the Suzanne Langlin and Maureen Conley's and, you know, Margaret Quartz and Billie Jean. And you, it just encompasses everything that um, tennis, you know, all the good things that tennis is all about. And I do, I get very emotional I, with you. You know, I have tears in my eyes, whoever wins, because I know it's going to change their life. The next thing you're going to do in that town's calendar, though, is, is Roland Garros uh, for European television, which you've done. We work together at Roland Garros. So I've seen how you are treated in Paris. And I know that Wimbledon and the U.S. Open are your favorites. But at Roland Garros, you walk around, it's like you're the, like the queen of Paris. I mean, all these French people come up and they're, they're kind of hushed and they're respectful. They don't know if they should approach or not approach. I mean, you won seven French Opens, and you only lost six matches in your career. You have more titles than losses. 72 and six. That's ridiculous. 
Do you feel yeah, that is. when you walk around Paris a bit that it's like a it's, it's like a special place and and that that you get that treatment from the French who are not always the quickest to embrace Americans? Every every year, um, I get less and less because you know I've got you know the the white it's supposed to be blonde, but it's, I've got the white <laughs> hair now, and you know, mo I mean maybe people over fifty, you know, will like recognize me but mo no i mean i can actually with walk through a crowd and won't get any fuss whatsoever but um that's kind of nice i guess at this point yeah no it's good but but a little fuss know, is okay there's a big difference you know on clay look i started playing on clay when i was six years old so i mastered it i feel at a young age i got it you know we had a connection clay and i did because it was about it was slowing up the game. It was about having patience. It was about having placement over power. Um, it was about having drop shots. And so when you grow up on a surface, you know, it's almost like when you learn to ski at a young age, you're just going to be great. But if you learn to ski, you know, when you're 40 years old, forget it. So, um, you know, I think that that tournament was special, but I, I didn't feel the pressure. I felt more confidence. I mean, to win Wimbledon for me was more of a challenge because my game was not suited for grass. And for me to figure out a way to make those, um, the, to be flexible and to adapt to the grass, I had to change a few things. I had to tweak a few things. And and I'm, I'm probably more proud of that. The fact that, that you know, I, a baseliner could win on grass at that point when most of the players were serve and volley. Billie Jean, Margaret Court, Yvonne Gulagong, Martina. It was all about serve and volley, and I didn't serve and volley. So to win on that surface, I think, was more of a challenge and, and maybe meant more to me than, than Clay. I was very comfortable, very confident every time I played the French Open. Yeah, that showed. That, that's how you get to be 72 and 6 at, <laughs> at that tournament. Hey, there was one time, I don't know if you remember this, when you did not get treated with reverence and respect in Paris. We were out to dinner. Yourself, I think your sister was with us, Chris McKendry, our, our ESPN host, Patrick McEnroe, and I, we all decided let's let's go get some sushi. Let's try to find some good sushi in Paris. We had enough with the French food. At the French at that time, they didn't have night matches. You, you could actually get a dinner after we'd finished working. So remember we go to this little sushi restaurant next to Notre Dame. It was in Ile City, I think, in the middle of Paris. And we're having a good time. We're carrying on. And we're laughing, and it's a very quiet little place. And the, the sushi master is like 80 years old over there behind the counter creating the sushi. And eventually, he sends one of the women who worked there around the counter out to talk to these loud Americans who are having a good time and enjoying each other's <laughs> company. And we got shushed. We got asked to quiet down and calm down and, and not make so much noise in this little sushi restaurant. You remember that? Yes, I do remember that. But you know what? We were making a lot of noise. We were obnoxious Americans. I have to. We were having fun. We probably had a glass of wine, too. But trust me, I the one time I remember was that I tried to get into Roland Garros and I forgot my pass. I forgot my badge. And, you know, I thought, well, they'll know me, you know, so I walk up and they say, no, 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 you can't come in. And I was with some people and they're going, she's Chris Everett. And no, 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 no. She won it seven times. No, 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 no. Look, look at her drivers. They looked at my driver's license. They look, I mean, we showed them everything and I couldn't get in. So, you know. There must have been was, a young that person that didn't have a clue, right? Come on. I mean, how do you? Yeah. <laughs> so so, you, so you, 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 what did you have to go back to the hotel and get it? You couldn't, you wouldn't get yeah. in the gate? Yeah. yeah. No, 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 no. I think those people went in and got a pass for me to get in. So thank God for that. I think it was working. <laughs>
<laughs> you know, you're one of the, the greats in the sport that is not caught up in your own achievements. You don't have an encyclopedic recall of how many times you've won this title or what your winning percentage was, your record against a certain player, except for Martina. We'll get to that later. But, but you just don't seem to get caught up in that stuff, Chrissy. And I, I think it's, it's nice because many players do have at the tip of their fingertips everything they've ever done, and they'll tell you about it proactively. <laughs> Why was that sort of something that, hey, I achieved this stuff, but I'm not going to attach that to myself and make that part of my, my you know, walking resume? I, I think because um, that's how I had longevity and consistency because I'd win a tournament and celebrate that night. If I won Wimbledon, celebrate that night. The next day, I was thinking, I've got Virginia Slims of Seattle in a week. And I wanted to win that tournament just as badly as I wanted to win Wimbledon. So I think in order to um, carry that momentum for years and years and years, I think you you can't think of the past. You know, you have to think that every day is a new day. You have to reset. You have to train hard and not be too impressed with what you did in the past. And that that. I always had that. I just wanted to keep winning. I was hungry, you know? So no, I don't, but I do know my percentage because it's the highest. And I do know. I think yes. That, I was going to say, yeah, I hope there's the one, one number of people who listen, you should know that, one, that, one that Chrissy Everett was 1,309 wins, 146 losses. So 89.97 winning percentage is the highest in the open a male or female. You got to give me a 90. Come on, 89.9. Are you <laughs> kidding me? I tell everybody 90. I mean, you, you deserve to be rounded up to 0.03. I get 90%. <laughs> no, that's the only one. Like when they say, when I'm doing an appearance and they say, what do you want, you know, for your achievements? I go, I don't care. Just, just remember that one. <laughs> I think it's still standing and everybody else, Serena, Martina, Steffi, everybody else has broken my other one. So that's, you know, I'm proud of that. Still standing. That's never going to be broken. Ninety yeah. percent for it. a career. Yeah, I don't think but, so. But we've it's talked about now. the fact that the, all, all those wins, which are expected, you took the court most of the time. Maybe unless it was against Martina or Steffi Graf when when you were later in your career, you you were fully expected to win. So the losses were more, more noteworthy. Like when Serena loses, the headline is Serena loses, not her opponent wins. You said though that losses played a really important role for you and that you remember them more than the wins well let, let's put it this way um i emotionally reacted stronger to losses than i did to wins because i didn't get again i didn't get too excitable when i won a major because i had to the next day like i said i, I put it behind me i was very happy but i didn't get too excited but when i lost i remember losing um, to Virginia Wade at Wimbledon. I stayed in my hotel room for three days in my robe and ate, just ordered room service for three days. <laughs> Not got the you know, just probably gained five pounds. And, and, you know, I remember um, it, that was depressing. I mean, it, it, I understand depression because, um, you know, I guess I, I, I took my losses inside of me because I didn't let emotion out on the court. I kept a lot in. And so, um, but, but they also, I think they motivated me more, you know, when I lost because I'd learned more about, okay, let's go back to the drawing board. What do I have to do differently? Um, so I think that's the reason, but now looking back, 
you know, when you get to a certain point and you have that much, that many years between, you know, your career and, and retiring and now it's like, I only think of the good moments. I, I never think of the bad moments. So that's good. I'm relieved to hear that. I three oh, days yeah, no. in your robe in a hotel room ordering <laughs> room service. I mean, did did somebody go knock at the door? I mean, now you didn't have probably the size of a team around you that modern players have, where they'd be beating in the door trying to talk you down off the ledge. But so three three days by yourself and no one could reach you, Chrissy, and say, "Come on out of the room." Okay. You, you were okay, second Chris. best. Okay, Chris. <laughs> Compare that to you know nowadays it's gotten to a point where a player will take a year off. Fair point. Or six six months off, you know, because because um, I don't know if it's a match, but you know, we had we had you know that the mental health, which is such a, a an important topic now, you know, and which is everyone's talking about. We had it, but it was in lesser terms in our day. You know, there wasn't that much focus. There wasn't the the um, social media. We didn't have the attention, the money, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that was our little, that was my little bout, you know, those three days. And, um, if, if that was the worst thing that happened to me, you know, I, I was in good shape. I think of you and, and so do many others who remember your career as one of these symbols of mental strength and toughness that leads to the kind of consistencies you have within a match and then within a career. And, it's interesting to hear you say that you, you, that was, it was part of you, but there were other sides you kind of kept well hidden. A part of your arm was to not show doubts and vulnerabilities you know, if you had them, or certainly you were able to get over those moments where you weren't consistent. You didn't make more mistakes than you wanted to. How did that, how were you able to sort of suppress that part of human nature so beautifully? Because I, I the way I'm wired, you know, I came out of the womb, um, a certain personality, you know, I wasn't a go-getter like Billie Jean and I wasn't emotional, you know, outwardly emotional like Martina, um, which, you know, which I, I actually admired the way they were. Um, but I was quiet and I, I didn't have, um, you know, tennis gave me self-esteem. I didn't have a lot of confidence as a kid and tennis gave me that feeling good about myself, achieving something. And I remember, practicing and getting mad. And my dad saying to me, took me aside and he said, Chrissy, in a very nice way, he said, let me just, let me just give you a tip. Don't show your opponent how you're feeling because they'll use that to their advantage. They'll say, aha, I've got her. And I never forgot that. I never forgot that because I would go out there and I'd be pretty much, you know, again, they, they had nicknames for me. Um, but I would go out there and not show emotion but it was also focus and I didn't want to be distracted. It was my personality and I used it to my advantage. And as soon as I saw my, my opponent getting emotional, I said, uh-huh, I've got her, you know, it worked for me. You know, you got to do whatever works for you. Did the nicknames bother you? No, no. I mean, I'm going to see you read like ice maiden or whatever, when you were yeah, a very young player, no, I mean, no, no, no. It's, it's amazing because I think like they name little miss poker face now would be a compliment, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, I say, I think they'd all be compliments now. It just shows that you're not succumbing to, um, 
of, of just losing your, your focus. And so, I mean, no, it, it really didn't bother me. That was, that was how I was. The other thing, Chris, was I was, um, I didn't think it was for me to get emotional or for me to go up and argue with the lines men or to, to argue with the umpire for, to me, knowing that millions of people were watching, you know, I just didn't think it was worth it. I, 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 to me, it felt like I was lowering, I would lower myself if I did that. Uh, you know, I don't know. I have to be honest. I, I just, um, wanted to be, you know, it's important to be a good sport for me. Admirable. You know, the beauty of tennis though, is that different personalities can emerge and excel and be stars and play the game their own way and express themselves their own way. So while that was a certainly work for you, Yes. Beyond belief. You know, we, we call matches people like Serena, who certainly do show the world, including their opponent, how they're feeling point to point. And that's that letting it out works for them. Yeah. And yeah. I think there's room to be all different kinds of ways on the court. Well, you know, I often say the most important gift that Richard Williams gave his daughters is to be fearless. Right from right from day one you know, to just be fearless, don't be afraid, go for everything. And the, the world is your oyster. And I, I kind of grew up in a, in a environment that was, um, you know, children should be seen and not heard. You know, that was the generation I, <laughs> I, I didn't argue with my dad. I would, you know, he was like, you know, I was kind of afraid of him and I didn't, I couldn't really, you know, I didn't really have a voice growing up. So I think that kind of carried over to my tennis. But um, when I see it, John McEnroe and Serena and Martina, when I see the emotions coming out, I'm like wistful. I'm like, God, I missed out on that. You know, I missed out on, on maybe some moments that I could have been that way, you know, in a natural way. I could have let myself go, let, let myself a little bit looser. And, um, you know, so I think it's great to have all different kinds of personalities. You talked about your dad, Jimmy, who was an enormous figure in tennis, especially down here in South Florida. And he taught you the sport and, and your sisters and brothers and, and many, many others. But he taught you to behave a certain way on the court. I guess, I guess behave a certain way off the court from what, what you're telling me. And yet when it came time for him to watch tennis matches, who, who did he tell you was his, his favorite player ever? Yeah, so this is a father who always kept, who always wanted me to, you know, be a lady out there and, and you know, <laughs> be controlled. And so I, I walk in the house and I hear my dad laughing and I, and I walk in the living room and he's watching John McEnroe on TV. And he said, oh, that, that guy, he's just great. He's just great to watch. And I go, dad. I go, are you kidding me? I go, you brought me up not to act like that. And he's your favorite player. And he goes, yeah, my favorite player. So I'm like, okay, fine. You know, that's, I, I guess maybe he's a, a, a guy, you know, maybe a guy can do it and a girl, a uh, woman couldn't do it. I don't know. But um, he, he was very amused by John. Yeah. It's so wonderful. You guys work together and you couldn't have been more different on the court. Your personalities on, on the set are different too. And both having a humongous profile in the sport, you guys have the license to spar with each other, as few do. And the way you guys play off of each other and, and 
you kind of look at him sideways when, when John veers into the lane of women's tennis and talks with authority about that and goes way over the time he's supposed to talk. <laughs> and I love John. Yeah. Believe me, he's been a guest on this podcast. But watching you guys interact is so fun. <laughs> we, we didn't always get along well. I mean, it was um, when we were both on the tour together, he thought, I remember I, he's, he thought that I was fake because I wasn't um, completely honest in press conferences. Like he would say, you know, why don't you, instead of always saying, oh, um, my opponent just played well, you know, if I lost a match, why don't you just tell him how you really feel, you know? And so he, we didn't always get along. And then I, there are a couple of times with him, you know, when I would see him act up, I mean, he was a little inappropriate at times on the court when he, when he acted up. So (laughs) we didn't get, it wasn't really until, honestly until we retired and had kids and i kind of i had a talk with him i I called him in when we were going to be working together and i called him in a room and i remember saying we got to get along i go look we have so much in common before we didn't have hardly anything in common but now you know we're both parents and we're both retired and we're in a new profession and um so it's been like 15 years or 20 years since i because I work with him for NBC as well as ESPN. And so we work together a lot. And, and I, I see the softer side, as you see, there's a real soft side to him and a very, a very um, caring side to him. He just, he just has to trust you. You know, he, you have to, you have to pass the test, but um, you know, there's a very lovable John Macaron as he gets older, he's, you know, he gets more and more um, relaxed. I think that helps and not threatened by people and not combative. And, you know, he's, he's become, you know, really a, a, a calmer person. Getting to work with both you and John is such a privilege and a treat. And uh, I'll have stories for life from that. What you guys share in common though, Chrissy, is both you and John were at the absolute top of your sport, but also were at the top of a second profession, tennis broadcasting. And I wonder if you have some appreciation for how remarkable that is and the pride you take in that. Because they're related, of course. You guys are talking about your experience on the court, and that's part of your announcing. But the, the jobs themselves are very different. So to get to where you are in, in the broadcasting business and for, have it be for decades on different continents recognized. I mean, I, I know that John will never feel like broadcasting is as big a deal as playing. But I think he, he appreciates being recognized for yeah. what he's done on TV. I hope you do too. Yeah. I mean, John, I mean, he's hired by everybody, so he better recognize that everybody wants him. <laughs> you know, he's, he's, they love his personality. Um, I do. I was thrown into NBC um, the year after I retired. And I remember Jimmy Connors and I were doing the, the tennis and we were both horrible. We were both horrible. Come it was, on. it was, no, it was the comments like, you know, that was a good down the line shot and that, you know, she's got to get her first serve in. And, uh, you know, it just, it was so surface and we got no training. I mean, we didn't know what to really, nobody kind of guided us. And I think right after you're, you're right after you retire, um, you know, maybe I needed a breather, but I was, I was really bad. I was awful. So then fast forward, fast forward, like 20 years later, when ESPN was interested in me, um, what I think the reason why, look, I don't know if I'm any good, but I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't be bad. I wouldn't be working, 
So I think the reason why I improved was the fact that I have a test academy. I have a test academy. I'm there every day. You know, I was there every day. And I learned, um, I relearned the technique. I relearned, you know, it's a new game. It's Western forehands. It's open stance. It's, it's not the same game as when I was playing. So I relearned that. I watched the kids play tournaments. I'd see the, the pros would come in. You know, we, we helped Masson Keys and Ila Tomjanovic. And um, we, we helped certain players, Donna Vekic. So the pros would come in and I'd watch them train. And so I kind of got, I was like getting an education by going to my tennis academy. And I think that kind of made my commentating maybe a little um, deeper and a little more um, informative. And um, of course, I th feel like I can talk about the mental side with, with my eyes closed, but the, the physical shot making was what was different. And I had to, so I had to relearn the game. Well, that's awesome. That's that's a lot of humility that you've, you've expressed there. I do want to get back to the Everett Tennis Academy later on because I know that's a very important part of your life, being around the game, whether it's the pros you mentioned or, or the young kids who are just trying to get better. I want to circle back to that. But you talked about the mental side. I mean, I think it's tough sometimes for an all-time great. You never choked, and you rarely made mistakes in big moments, but that's not the reality for most of the players that we talk about. So, yeah. So, yeah the challenge of relating <laughs> to those, you know, fallible human emotions for you. I can see sometimes it just doesn't compute. She needs to just, just stop missing, just stop <laughs> missing shots, <laughs> cut down on your errors. I mean, easy to say, Chrissy, hard, hard for most players. <laughs> you sound like, you sound like my brother, John, who he manages the Academy <laughs> and we will sit there and we'll watch a junior play. And I'll say, okay, that she had three balls in the bottom of the net in a row. And he'll go, Chrissy, he goes, you're wired differently. Stop <laughs> it. You've won 90,000 matches. You know, you're different. And I, I I promise you, my whole thing, even to this day, is when I look at these kids, is I still feel the player that makes less errors is going to have like an 80% chance of winning the match. I think that carries over with juniors and pros. So I've always been a real fan of not making errors. But um, yes, I, I've had to adjust my thinking, and and now it's like you know I tell the I, I tell our girls um, you know hit down the middle, <laughs> just just hit down the middle, <laughs> you know make the court small, you know. So it, I think it's, consistency is just undervalued because yes, people it is. don't yeah. worry about missing. They they go for shots. That's the modern power game. They yeah. on yeah. both the women's and the men's side, yeah. and the errors pile up. And they're willing yeah, to live yeah. with that because it's power. You got to hit, make the first strike. And so we don't see the consistency. It's not even taught at, at this point. Look, when you're inside the baseline and you've got some sitters, you go for it. Okay. You pull the trigger. When you're six feet behind the baseline, you don't pull the trigger. I mean, it's kind of common sense. And I think maybe growing up on clay, I had that, that I think I had that, um, anticipation or I, I had that naturally that feeling of when to when to go for shots and when to hold back I mean that came pretty easy to me um but it's like you got to keep the court smaller you've got to have big targets you've got to keep hitting the ball with acceleration and spin you know it's there's like two or three easy things you've got to move and um you know I think people forget 
the fundamentals. People forget the most important, simple things. They Coaches have to keep it simple with these kids. We've talked a little bit about the ESPN tennis family, and I'd like you to express what that's meant to you because I come into this from other sports and, and in 2003 began working with a lot of the folks we've talked about as well as Mary Jo Fernandez and Pam Shriver and Patrick McEnroe and Darren Cahill and Brad Gilbert and now James Blake and others. And for a bunch of folks that came into this from a purely individual sport where you are your boss of your team, if you even have a team, but you are solely responsible for most things in your career and you're out there by yourself and it is not a team sport. And now broadcasting, which is very much a team sport, you have to come together and, and sort of share the assignments and get along and try not to be envious and try not yeah. to be jealous of what someone else is doing. And it's pretty remarkable. I, I think that it's, it's a source of like endless gratitude for me, Chrissy, to work with you and, and this team. I know it's been really, really important to you and what it's meant, the friendships over the years. Yeah, it's, um, you have to leave your ego at the door, so to speak, you know, and, um, you really, you really do. And I think that when you come from an individual sport, you kind of have that, that ego. I mean, I, I think what I've realized is, um, after retiring and after like living my life that everybody thought, you know, you know, you're so humble and, you know, you really handle things well and this and that. Yeah, I have, but I, I, I also, there's also entitlement. And there, there is an ego and your ego is big. And, um, I think in the beginning, maybe, maybe I was even looking around to see who, what assignments other people were getting. I'm, I'm sure I did. And no, I'm not sure I did. I did. And, <laughs> <laughs> and now it's, it's like when you feel comfortable that you're doing a good job, then you know, it doesn't matter what assignment you get. It doesn't matter what other people are getting. It's you just want to root for them as well. And you want the team aspect. You want the team to look good. You want ESPN tennis to get some awards and you want people to talk about the ESPN team, you know, just as much as you want them to talk about you individually. So um, it's been a, a growing, you know, it's been growth for me to be on teams. I know because tennis, God, you gotta be selfish, so self-absorbed and think about yourself. But in this team aspect, you, you stand out like a sore thumb and everybody knows if you think about yourself, <laughs> I mean, everybody knows. So it's, it, but do we have a, we have a great team. We have yeah. so many, so many different personalities from Brad Gilbert to John McEnroe from Pam to me, you know, I mean, you just, everybody's so different. And I think that that adds to the 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 color and the commentating yeah perfectly said it's it's a sport where people gravitate because they don't want to share the ball as you said individual sport athletes fend for themselves and they they don't have to be part of a team and they a lot of them like that a lot when you come into tv you're very much in a team and you do have to share the ball you do have to get along and go out to dinner whether you're you're in melbourne australia in the summer down there Going, going to restaurants and hanging out and in the trailer or Wimbledon, you know, in the little village where tennis just takes over this Wimbledon village and, and the commentators are all over the place. And yeah, it, yeah. it's a much nicer experience if you do really 
not just respect, but enjoy the company of the people that you work with. And so we're, we're lucky and, that and, way, and, I think. And to even take it one step further, you know, I, you know, I, I like it when Tennis Channel and NBC and ESPN and Eurosport, I like it when everybody feels that they're in this together and there's no jealousy and there's no competition and there's no, we're better than you. You know, I, I take it a step further and I, you know, I celebrate the other commentators from other, you know, networks as well. And that's, I've had to learn, you know, I've, I've, I've done that. Um, and I think we all, we're all, we all should feel proud that we're representing the sport and we're explaining what's going on to, to the spectators. And I think that's, you know, very important. I know we've spoken and you said that that ESPN tennis team has been important to you in, in recent months and years in your life, as most people will know, um, well, you battled the hell out of cancer and you, you suffered loss. Your sister Jeannie, um, battled ovarian cancer for a couple of years and, and passed away early in, in 2020. And it was through her sad passage that you're able to become aware, uh, of your own issues and your own risks. So you shared some of the story, Chris, you've been very open and courageous, and I think inspired a lot of people the way you've been so transparent about it. But let's begin with, with Jeannie and, and what, what you saw, your, your dear sister, who was also a professional tennis player, by the way, in, in her time, go through and, and how that changed you even before you, you had to battle cancer yourself. Yeah, and I, I talk about how we discovered it because you know, I don't think Jeannie would mind me talking about her journey. And I, cause I think that people will, um, it's good information, but I was going to Singapore and I invited my sister Jeannie to come along. She's two years younger than me. And I was kind of, we we're late. So I was running to the gate and I look behind and she's walking fast when she's huffing and puffing. And this was, I think November. And, um, I said, Jeannie, come on, we got to go. We gotta go. She goes, wait, I just, I'm just out of breath. And so we got on the airplane and um, I said, are you okay? And she goes, yeah, I just think I have like a, I, I think I had a chest infection, you know, last week and I'm just getting over it. and I go, okay. So we, we landed in Singapore and then we went to the gym the next morning and she couldn't even walk fast on the treadmill. And I looked at her and I said, are you, how are you feeling? She goes, huffing and puffing. I'm just out of breath. And I go, okay. This was like on a Wednesday and we were, we were going to be home on Monday. And I said, you call your doctor right now and you, on Monday you get an appointment. And I go, this isn't, this isn't good. And furthermore, when I looked at her body, it was a little, you know, it was a little swollen um, around the stomach area and it was just, it didn't look like her. So I go, Jeannie, and she goes, I'm going to go to the doctor. Okay. So we, we go home and she went to the doctor and, you know, within a week, she had like stage four, they announced that she had stage four um, ovarian cancer and meaning that it had spread to other organs. So, you know, they put her on chemotherapy and um, they, they took um, a blood test to see if she had the BRCA, the positive BRCA gene. And ironically enough, the test result came out negative. So she didn't have the BRCA gene but she had a, she had a variant of uncertain significance. And that's very, those two words, uncertain significance, which 95% of the time turn out to be normal. 
but basically it means it hasn't been tested enough. So she had that, but she was, so the doctor said, you don't have to be tested, Chrissy, you know, and your, your siblings don't have to be tested because Jeannie's, she's, she's negative. So Jeannie went through a two year horrible, I mean, it was chemotherapy. Then it was, um, you know, she, she had, she, they, doctors tried everything. I mean, they tried everything. She was, but it, it was, it's insidious ovarian cancer because you don't, it, it just, it kills you. If you're, if you're stage three or four, it's, it's dismal, you know, you don't have a good chance. So she passed away two years later and, um, you know, we were all with her very, she's so brave, you know, never complained, never complained, but she had, she just was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful person put everybody before her. So consequently, after her death, um, like you said, 2020, um, I got a year later, year or two years later, I got a phone call from the hospital and it was a geneticist, a genetic doctor. And they said, Chrissy, we want to inform you that remember Jeannie carried that variant um, that variant that we were unsure about that normally 95% of the time would be normal. Well, that has turned cancerous and that Jeannie would have the BRCA gene right now. She would be BRCA positive. So we advise you and your siblings to get tested. I got tested the next day. I was BRCA positive. <laughs> I was BRCA positive. And I'm like, are you kidding me? So, you know, right, right away within a month, um, I had, uh, my doctor said, let's be proactive. Let's just go in and have the hysterectomy. Let's not even think about ovaries out. Let's just get the whole thing out. You know, you've had kids, you don't need to worry about anything. Just get it out. So had a total hysterectomy and it was supposed to be, you know, proactive and we were supposed to look ahead and nothing was supposed to be there. And all of a sudden my doctor, you know, said the operation went well, three days later, he came back and he said, but you know what we, we found out that you have um, cancer in your um, fallopian tubes and you have cancer in your ovaries as well. So we want to go in again. And they went in 10 days later to make sure to see um, if the lymph nodes and all the organs around, if I had, if it had spread. So Chris, it was a matter of me for those three days, I was either going to be stage one or basically stage four. Mm. And this is a matter of three weeks, Chrissy. You're talking about thinking that 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 BRCA variant was not going to be a part of your life to yeah. getting that news, to having a, a hysterectomy, to getting this other news going back. I mean, what a what an incredibly terrifying but brief period of time all this unfolded in. Yeah, I I, I think that for those three days, I I hibernated. I just you know I didn't tell. I told my family, but I just isolated myself and just tried to be positive, think positive thoughts and, and just take deep breaths. And it was, it was probably the, probably the worst three days of my life. And then lo and behold, three days later, my doctor called and he said, you're clear. I sent, um, I said, could I have the could I have all the results? Um, because I would like to send them to um, 
another hospital too. She, I wanted a second, third opinion. I had three opinions. I, that they, I had three different doctors look at the slides to make sure that I was clear. And they all said I was clear. So that put me at stage one ovarian cancer. Um, and I had to do six bouts of chemotherapy. So that's, that's really the story. And I, I, I say, my sister saved my life at, at her expense. You know, it's just, it's horrible that I was at her expense, but um, if Jeannie, you know, Jeannie, I don't know. I hate to say it. I hate to even think about it. If Jeannie hadn't had it, um, you know, which, I, my doctor you, said, yeah. my doctor said that this was December that I had a double, uh, that I had hysterectomy. And my doctor said that if it had been April, four months down the road, it would have been four stage four. Yeah, as, as awful as it is to lose a sister, that's beyond our control. You you did say that you, you thought that Jeannie's journey ended up saving your life. It did. In that way, because it made you aware. Well, it did. I, and you know what? Thank God for genetic testing. Genetic testing saved my life as well. That's why if I'm going to have a message for anybody, it's if you have, you have to know your family history. Because if you have anything, if you have any genetic um, history, and this is not even cancer, this is heart disease, this is diabetes, this, these are other things as well, you better get checked. You better get blood work and you better get checked and um, before it's too late. So, so anyway, just to continue that, um, that was half the battle with, with BRCA, with the positive BRCA gene, you you have like a 60% chance of getting ovarian cancer and you have a 75% chance of getting breast cancer. So I had a decision to make, either take a chance, not do anything with the breasts, um, just get them checked like three times a year and hope for the best. My doctor said, well, he goes, you can do that, but then you, if you have cancer, you have to go through chemotherapy again and you have to have another operation and you're, he goes, you know, they advise like 90% of the doctors advise to, to get a double mastectomy if you have the BRCA positive gene. So that was my route. That was my, my journey, which just happened, you know, really in the last six months, that's what's been going on with me. Yeah. It's a decision based on the odds. <laughs> 75% are not good odds, yeah. obviously. So it, no. it's a prudent choice, but still you're, you're, you're electing to have surgery proactively yeah. reduce the risk. It's, it's still got to be a little bit scary. I mean, and then to go through that process, which um, so many women bravely do, and then the reconstructive process after it, it, yeah. it, it, it there's a <laughs> point at which I mean, you must say, when is this going to end? When, when is it, when, when, when will I have like a normal day? I know it's, um, it, it, it was a 16 month journey. I've, I'm three month, three weeks out. I had my last surgery on my breast three weeks ago. And, you know, now I'm, you know, there's nowhere to go, but up. And I still have to like three times a year, go to my, you know, gynecologist and get checked and take my blood and do all that. I mean, the first five years are crucial, you know, after you've been diagnosed with cancer. As we get older, it's more important to get as much information as we can, no matter how potentially scary that information is. You said earlier, know your family history. What other messages do you have for people, Christy, when it comes to looking out for their health and also dealing with the bad news, you know, when it comes? 
Well, I mean, for, look, you, you should always get your annual exams. I mean, for a woman, that's, um, you know, you have to, you get your breast checked once a year anyway, you get a colonoscopy if you have, especially if you have colon cancer in your family. So you, you make your medical appointments. But the, the other thing is, if you feel anything different going on in your body internally, don't wait three months, go and wait three days and then go, look, what do you, what's the worst thing that can happen? You're a hypochondriac, I mean, you know, um, just if you feel anything different, if you feel more tired or if you're, if you have bleeding anywhere or any kind of difference in your body, just get it taken care of right away. I think that I've learned, I've learned, and I tell, I've, I've told, oh my gosh, I've, I have um, two or three friends that have gotten genetic testing and, and with not good results since this happened. And um, only 20% of people, because men can get, can be BRCA2, which is chest also, um, only 20% of people who have, who are BRCA positive know it. What does that tell you? 80% are walking around on yes. borrowed time and they don't know it. Yeah. But we talk about even, even heart disease, eight, probably 90% of people are walking around with high blood pressure and don't know it. Right. You know, so. How has, how has cancer changed you? I'm more in the moment. I'm more in the moment now. Um, I take deep breaths more and, and, and appreciate talk to myself about appreciation and about gratitude. Um, I'm more aware. I think I'm more aware of things in life now. I mean, it, it really, it opens your eyes. It, I mean, people have written millions of books about this. What happens when you, when you have cancer, how do you feel differently? Just more, I think more awareness, more gratitude and, and appreciating that I still have this moment, but you know, I still have that. I still, the fear creeps in sometimes because I'm 68 years old and, and it doesn't have as much to do. Well, you always think you're going to, my parents both lived to 90. So you always think, oh, you still have, you know, you still have a good portion of your life to live. But I think when you get older and you've had cancer, you know, you, you, you think about death more often as, as well. I've always admired that you are such a strong, resilient person. And that, that has had to be on display. You, you, you lose your dad. Jimmy, we talked about that. Jeannie's passing, and it was told to me by others in your family that Chrissy was always the one in the family that others would look to for strength. You would be the rock around uh, which others would sort of gain strength from and galvanize. So when you were the one that was facing potentially grave situation and having to be the vulnerable one, for some of us, that's not a very comfortable position. You'd rather sort of be the one trying to give strength than the one get, getting empathy. How was that just opening yourself up and being, you know, vulnerable, not just to the friends and family around you, but also the members of the, of the public? 
Well, I'm, I'm really lucky um, that I, my sister Claire was there for me. You know, my sister, I had two sisters and they are my best friends. Jeannie passed away. And so I have Claire. She was with me for all my chemos. Andy, my ex-husband took me to all my chemos. I'm lucky to have him, my kids. I mean, I, I'm lucky that you rely on your family, but at the same time, they have a life too. And I think, you know, then all of a sudden they'll stay for three days and then leave. And I think you're alone. I'm, you know, I'm alone. I was alone in the house and, and I'm thinking you, you only have yourself to rely on really. I mean, <laughs> you can get comfort. People are great, but at the end of the day, it's what's inside of yourself that you, you know, the feelings that you feel. And you could project feelings, Chrissy, but when you look in the mirror and it's just you in the mirror, sometimes it's hard to hide from that. And that's where you have to look in your, look at yourself. And, and what, yeah. what did you tell yourself when you saw, saw yourself in the mirror and your face in that stuff? <laughs> what did I tell myself? I think, I think, um, and Andy and I talk about this a lot, I guess I, I, I think about after you know, I just think about how I screwed up my personal life and how I, um, after tennis, um, you know, I, I did feel I had entitlement and, um, with, with, with personal relationships and, um, you know, I think, I think I, I really came to a moment of, um, realizing my mistakes and my poor choices and more than more than my great choices and my great wins you know it just came to god you know this is life that tennis that was you know that was like a third of my life but it's not really about relationships it's not really about love it's not really about you know humanity as much as when you retire from tennis and you have kids and you get married and you know, I just, I think I, uh, look, I did a whole three month intense imprint therapy where I had a woman on, you know, she was a therapist and she was, we went right from day one of my life, right up until now. And, um, you know, and wow. I realized that success and fame, you know, that they they can be toxic and they can, it can hurt you when you have people telling you how great you are for since you've been a kid, 15 years old, you know, deep inside, that's where you start to get a little entitlement. And then it, you know, you make some bad decisions. And I think I started, so I, I kind of realized, you know, the reality of, of, of my life and my choices. That's tough stuff to have to deal oh, with. It's tough. And, and, it's but tough. then you come out of it I mean, you're laughing about it. You come out of, yeah. I, I assume, yeah. changed, improved with a better perspective. In, in the tournaments yeah. we've worked since you've come back from cancer, I've noticed a little difference. There, there's a lightness to it. Maybe we all understand that, that calling a tennis match isn't the most damn important thing in the world when you face what you face. And, you know, that perfection isn't, isn't the goal and needn't be an obsession because you've been shown what, what the really important stuff is and, and maybe learn what isn't so important. Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's, um, it's you got really even better than you were before, by the way, as, as a commentator, I think this had an effect to sort of just, I don't know if it's, if loosening up, you, th these are my words, not yours, but I just sense a little difference in, in how you sort of approach the day to day.
Well, I, I try to, you know, look, I have, I've always had a little anxiety disorder in me. That's another thing I've had. And I feel like, um, I feel, I feel like, you know, what more after you have cancer, you know, what more can they take away from you? What more can, you know, the, this world take, take, take from you? I mean, and, and I realize that what, what, what you give, you get back. And I realize that it's, I mean, life is about more about giving and the ego will be getting in the way. And, you know, but <sighs> I'm sweating now thinking about it. <laughs> I, you know, there are a lot of lessons to be learned. I mean, this is, this is like for a book There's just or a 10 hour session with you. I mean, there are a lot of, of lessons to be learned. Um, we don't stop learning. That's for sure. We don't stop learning. And hopefully if we're lucky until our last yeah. day. And I, I thank you for sharing what you did there. It's obviously it's just the surface, but um, it's powerful stuff. And the way that you've handled it, gone about your business and then been open about it is enormously valuable and important in, in being able to inspire people who have admired you, but just making them aware of things that would never have occurred to them. Say if Chrissy is yeah. telling me this, then it means something. If she dealt with it and it helped her, that means something to me. So don't ever underestimate the power right, right, of your right. example, Chrissy, and your message. Right. And, and I, no, look, I think that I'm more open. Like you said, I think I'm more open to, to talking about my wrong choices as well. And the, these are the, to help people also like these, this is what you can fall into. This is, you know, what happens if you, I, I, I just think, I just think, you know, when you have fame and fortune, I, I just, it's just, it prevents you from really being a normal down to earth person in a lot of ways. You know, it, it, it really does. And because yes, we have to work hard on the court, but off the court, things are given to us. We have suites at hotels, you know, we, we have room service, we have people giving us gifts. We have wonderful articles written about us. I mean, we have endorsements, we have money, you know, it's just, everything's given, everything's given to us. And I don't know, that's just not, that's not real life. You pay a price for everything, Chris Fowler. Well said, Chrissy. I'm, I'm always open to your wisdom, believe me. You, <laughs> cancer is something that you and your longtime rival, Martina Navratilova, also have in common. So I know you guys it, it, we, we would also be a 10 hour podcast to describe yeah. <laughs> your relationship and your rivalry. I get that. We don't have time for that, but you know, you have been a, a dear friend to her from a relationship that I'm sure was tense at, at you guys faced off 80 times, 80 times. At one point you won 15 straight majors between you. The stats are mind boggling. It, it, when the WTA rankings came into play in 75, the first 615 weeks of the rankings, you or Martina were ranked number one for 592 of 615. And you, the other was probably number two at the time. So you guys are incredibly linked more than any two, I would say, athletes in the history of any sport. And you become friends. And how has that relationship been impacted by the fact that Martina in recent months and years has been battling breast cancer and also throat cancer? But she says she's now cancer free, thank God. Yeah. Yeah. She, she also had stage one, you know, thank God, like you said, you know, we, we got, 
look, you're you're right. I mean, it, it was tense for a while. I mean, we played for 18 years against each other. So it was definitely tense for a while. Um, our relationship was up and down and there were some jealousies and with both of us and, and really competitiveness. And, you know, that's the tough thing about being an individual sport. But at the end of our careers, middle to the end, we just got really close because we were the only ones in the locker room every Sunday. And so one of us was always comforting the other one. And it was beautiful. It was beautiful. And we, and I think we got to the stage when we got to our late twenties, early thirties, that we didn't feel threatened by the other person. We realized that what we had together, the rivalry was really special in tennis. Um, look, and it couldn't have been better. She was, we were totally the opposites. I mean, to, in everything from the way we played to our personality, to our visions and life and whatever. So we both have a place in, in Aspen and we both have a place in South Florida. I mean, we ended up, we're living in the same towns <laughs> and then we get our cancers overlap. You know, I had it first and she was, came to the house. It was very supportive. And then she called me and said, call me ASAP. And I knew something was wrong. I knew that she never calls and says that. And she told me the double whammy of the throat and the breast and she goes can you believe it and she was she was more mad than anything I think she was just mad you know and and I really to see what she went through she had radiation and chemotherapy and it made us closer you know we kept in touch and we we just we kind of laugh that it's so ironic that these things happened to both of us at pretty much the same time um and she she I I feel like I have a more kind of methodical kind of a um, attitude about, you know, I'm taking one day at a time and I'm getting my, my energy back, you know, every day with Martina, it was like, it was like, no, I just can't. I mean, she was skiing in Aspen last week while she's still going through radiation. You know, she was skiing and she's going out to dinner and she's, she's damn this cancer, you know, this isn't, isn't going to stop me. And she just, she's very aggressive with her with her approach to it. And I just, you know, again, we're different. <laughs> you know, I just have to laugh about it. Yeah. Well, there's different ways to attack it and that's each person's <laughs> personal choice, but yeah. are you allowed to give her advice because your personalities were so different? You have been, been through it a little bit, uh, for a longer period of time. Do you, do you share it? And is she receptive to it? Well, you know, she had, she had breast cancer before this. So she actually went through this before I even, I did. Um, one thing about Martina and I, because we're so different, we've learned a lot from each other. You know, we've learned about how the other, the other side lives and what the other side thinks and what, I mean, th this is a woman who came from a communist country, Czechoslovakia, who defected at a young age and, um, and her lifestyle is different than mine. And, her the way she plays tennis her approach to life her mindset is a little different you know we're so we're different but we're, we're we share a lot share a lot in common you know we've been number one in the world and we've you know been heroes to a lot of people and we've had cancer and we've had you know ups and downs in our relationships I always kid her because I go you know people give me a hard time because I've been married three times I said I can count like I knew 12 girlfriends that you had <laughs> I go, and I don't even know how many you married, but 
I, I, I can name them right now. I go, why don't they give you a hard time? You know? <laughs> so we, 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 we will we stay out fun. of the relationship area for, for both of you in this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> As you said, we could do three separate 10 hour shows on the various things. <laughs> Well, it's, it's been delightful. I mean, thanks again for, for sharing so much uh, of your life and your wisdom and your experiences from, from a, a young age to where we, where we sit here now. I, I hope we can get together at Wimbledon. And it's so hard to share meals. As you point out, we don't get, everybody's yeah. got their own schedule. And I hope we can have the opportunity yeah. to sit in a nice small restaurant in Wimbledon with a bunch of our friends at ESPN and get yes. loud and get shushed again. That's, that's my, that that's my hope. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you for for being a mentor to me when it comes to the broadcasting, because I, I didn't you know, I, I was the new kid 10, 12 years ago. And you've really um, been uh, I just respect your work so much that I love working with you, Chris. So thank you. That's very kind. You know, you have to be in your A game. You know how nervous you make people work a match with you when they haven't done so before. One of the younger <laughs> announcers, Chrissy, just just so you know. You should be, be, be understanding with them because you get a little nervous when, yeah. when you're in their presence with them in this booth. Yes. Yes. No, <laughs> I enjoyed it. Thank you for opening me up. And, and I hope that people can get the message about their health to, to know their family history and, and to really be their own advocate of their own body. That is such a powerful message. And I'm grateful to Chrissy for sharing it and for really opening up during our conversation. She also told me that her family at the Everett Tennis Academy in Boca, her brother John, the coaches there, the young players, were so crucial to her as she was going through cancer treatment and recovering from surgeries. It gave her a loving support group, some place to go every day that she was able to and just be surrounded by the sport that she loves. Can't wait to reunite with Chrissy and our ESPN tennis team at Wimbledon in July. In the meantime... This is the final episode of Fowler Who You Got, Season 6. It's a shorter season than usual, and there's some good reasons for that. I'm headed off to Nepal with my brother Drew for a couple weeks of trekking and climbing in the Khumbu region around Everest, 25 years after our first life-changing trip there. If this kind of thing interests you, the Wasfia Nazreen Episode 2 of this season, we talk a lot about the Himalayas. And then... Jennifer and I are headed off to celebrate our 20th wedding anniversary on our 23rd anniversary, back where we honeymooned in Africa. The trip has been postponed three years by various world events, but finally we are going to get to Africa. I want to thank Jennifer, my co-executive producer on this podcast for all six seasons. It's my voice you hear, but her Many talents and skills are a massive part of every single episode, every facet of the episode, and I'm filled with gratitude for that. Also, I want to thank the folks at Octagon for helping put together this podcast, and mostly thank all of you for finding and listening to this podcast and giving us such wonderful feedback. There are many great episodes that are archived. We invite you to check those out while we're on hiatus. Everyone has a story, and all of them are compelling. So enjoy that. Be well, and I'll talk to you soon.